Hello, and I'm uh, glad to have you listening into the show today. Um, I have a new guest, is third-year veterinary student Sam Hollister. He has brought an article with him that, um, that we'll discuss called Post-Operative Thrombocytosis and Thromboelastographic Evidence of Hypercoagulability in Dogs Undergoing Splenectomy for Splenic Masses. It's a mouthful, but it's a good discussion. Um, we, we have a lot to chat about, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. If you have any comments, uh, questions, or ideas for shows, you can leave them um, on our Twitter, uh, which is at Vet Journal Club, or our Instagram, which is the same handle. Uh, again, hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm excited to invite one of our third-year veterinary students, Sam Hollister, um, to the show. And uh, he brought an article that he wanted to talk about, and it is called Postoperative Thrombocytosis and Th- Thromboelastographic... Wow, I butchered that. Thromboelastographic Evidence of Hypercoagulability in Dogs Undergoing Splenectomy for Splenic Masses. Um, and this is in JAVMA, and the authors are Drs. Phipps, De La Fercade, uh, Barton, and Berg. So, Sam, thanks for being here today. Oh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so um, maybe tell me a little bit about, um, you know, why this article caught your eye and, and just what they, what they did. Um, well, I found that these hypercoagulable states that we see in a lot of our ICU patients, um, I just find them, you know, really interesting. It's something that, you know, I, I want to have on the forefront of my mind, you know, kind of heading towards that um, as, you know, my kind of career path that I'm looking at. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I just, I, I'm trying to stay um, personally aware of, of all these uh, kind of changes that we can expect to see. And I think it's also an area that we are kind of struggling to know more about. Um, yes. So, all this research is pretty interesting to me. Yeah. All right. Well, then um, tell us about what these guys did. Yeah, sure. So this was a uh, prospective observational study that mm-hmm. they did. Um, and their, their goals were to determine the frequency and severity of thrombocytosis and thromboelastographic evidence of hypercoagulability during the first two weeks post-splenectomy in uh, this population of dogs. And they had 34 dogs. Um, they kind of discussed, um, based on some human literature, that, yep. um, you know, uh, the, these changes that they're, they're seeing, hypercoagulability uh, and thrombocytosis, are common in human patients. So I, I, I think this study was an effort to kind of describe that in dogs. Yeah. Yeah, and I think they, you know, there's a handful of things that have been reported in veterinary medicine, and, and they also kind of mentioned we're, we're seeing some of this in our, in our own hospital. Um, so, you know, that's what sort of piqued their interest and said, we, we should look at this too. There's a phenomenon that we has been clearly reported in people. We think we're seeing it. So let's, let's try to find out if there's something to this or if we're, we're making it up, which is always a good way to go when yeah. you think you're seeing something, right? Um, and uh, I was really excited when they threw Verkel's triad in there, um, <laughs> explaining things. It's always, it doesn't come up very often. And so um, as a hemostasis nerd, I got excited about that, um, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later, but um, so we're really only going to be looking at one part of this in, in, in their study, right, is just looking, trying to see is there evidence of hypercoagulability. Um, so you, you mentioned they looked at um, thrombocytosis and then, um, you know, tag variables. So what, um, in, in the two weeks after surgery, so, so tell me a little bit more about what they did. Yeah, sure. So, um, like, as I said, they had 34 dogs. Um, this was this was um, patients that, that presented on emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I don't know that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't think all of them were, actually. Some um, of them were scheduled. Yeah, so sorry. It was 34 dogs that, that had splenic masses. 
Um, and they collected samples uh, at the time of anesthetic induction or day zero, um, again on day two, day seven, and day 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they had these samples for uh, packed cell volume, platelet counts, serum total proteins, and then uh, tag parameter assays as well. Yeah. Um, they also performed histopath of the, the spleen that was removed as well yeah. as any other lesions um, that were observed during surgery. They measured the largest uh, dimension of the tumors and also the volume of any peritoneal fluid that was that was present. Mm-hmm. Um, dogs were considered to have thrombocytosis if they had greater than 486,000 platelets um, at any point in time, and they used Kalin-activated TAG yeah. and recorded um, R, K, alpha, M, A, and G uh, values, mm-hmm. and just uh, compared to established reference uh, values. Yeah. And they were considered to have evidence of hypercoagulability if uh, K values were lower than the reference limits or any alpha, MA, or G values were greater than upper reference limits. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty standard, right, um, in veterinary medicine to look at those values. Um, I have a beef with the G value that we can we can chat about later. I'm not a fan of it. But, um, <laughs> but we um, basically what they're trying to show, you know, is... Is there evidence using TAG um, and and maybe looking at platelet counts to say, are these dogs potentially at increased risk of forming clots postoperatively? Um, but when we think about Verkal's triad, we know that that's still only one component of it. So that that's one of the limitations of this study that we can chat about a little bit mm-hmm. more later. But um, the um, so w- what did they find? So they they did find that these dogs were pretty consistently thrombocytopenic, and it was a it was a significant jump from their preoperative day zero values. Yeah, a lot of them had thrombocytopenia early and then developed a thrombocytosis later. Yeah. Um, um, which is interesting. And that seemed to kind of peak around day seven. Yep. Um, and they also demonstrated very consistently um, evidence of hypercoagulability. Uh, sorry, that word's a mouthful. It is, isn't it? <laughs> um, in in a, over 80% of the dogs. Yeah. Um, and that was also... Uh, pretty um, consistently found throughout. Yeah, no, this is, I think, sometimes a point of contention with um, with hemostasis nerds, too, is, is how do you define hypercoagulability? Um, and so in, in their study, essentially, we know what they're looking about was any one of these tag parameters, you know, consistent with that. And the, the short answer is, you know, we don't really know, um, you know, what the right answer is. And, um, you know, in an ideal situation, Sam, like, what would you want to compare like these variables to, to say, yes, this suggests hypercoagulability or, or this is significant clinically? Um, I think you would really want to be able to correlate it to the actual evidence of thrombotic events. Occurring. Yes, yeah. yes, you nailed it. Yeah, that is ultimately the problem we have in all of these types of studies. And, and I, I, this is not meant to be a, a complaint or a dig at the authors because it's, it's really hard to do that um, in veterinary medicine. But yeah, that's what we want to know. That's really what I care about is did these changes in, um, in these blood parameters actually um, predict who's going to have a complication postoperatively? Now, again, I've mentioned Verkel's triad a couple of times. You could have no changes in your coagulation parameters and develop a thrombosis because there are two other parts of Verkel's triad. Um, but, you know, the, the tag is something we can do. We can measure relatively easily, assessing for, you know, um, you know venous stasis or assessing for, um, you know, dysfunction in the endothelium, 
we're not, we're not good at that. That's the short version. Like, even if we're pretty sure it's happening, we're not good at saying, yes, this is happening into this degree. We're certainly not really able to quantify it. Um, and so we do focus on, you know, looking at things like tag or other markers of hypercoagulability because it's what we can do. Um, but to date in veterinary medicine, there are very, very few studies that actually try to see, can we use this information to predict outcomes? Because at the end of the day, that's that's what I care about. That's what the clients care about. Um, that That's really what we should. So this is like step one. Um, so, But that's part of the problem is, is I don't know what to make of, you know, finding one tag parameter that is prolonged. What does that mean? Does that translate to a real or significant increase in risk? Is that going to be different depending on what disease process we're talking about? Maybe, but I, I just don't know at this point. Yeah, um, I think I think that was my main takeaway. Yeah. is that you know after reading this this paper, I was basically left with okay, well we can add that to the list of things that cause these lab changes. Yeah, still don't really know if it's clinically relevant. Exactly. So. Now I suspect it it probably is right. Mm -hmm. it, it makes physiologic sense that it would be, and when you combine the thrombocytosis with um, all of these changes, you know we we have a reasonable physiologic understanding of what contributes to thrombosis. Um, the question then becomes, though, you know, what, what do we do about it? Um, you know, should we be giving antithrombotics to, you know, every patient that has a splenectomy? I, I think you could make an argument for that. We don't have the evidence to support it yet, though. We, we don't. We're not there. Um, but, it, you know, that's like a lot of what we do in veterinary medicine is we make choices based on limited or sometimes very, very little or no evidence. Um, so but this this is an important study. I think it's it's helpful. It, it adds to the piece of the puzzle. Um, I think what ultimately we're going to need to do is is get together um, lots and lots of institutions and pool our resources and say, okay, we're going to follow these guys out and actually find out are they developing clots mm -hmm. when they shouldn't. Um, you know, we have suspicions, and they talked about this in the study as well that they had a handful of patients that they were suspecting. Um, uh, you know, a thromboembolic event. I think the one they were worried about. Um, uh, uh, one, a brain um, clot, essentially. Um, none of the clients um, consented to necropsy for the patients who died, which is always frustrating. Um, and it's one of the things that we should try to do when we do these prospective studies is is get that in the in the agreement. Now they can always change their minds. We know that um, they can withdraw at any time, and they they did have several clients withdraw from the study, um, you know, preliminarily. But um, but that's that's the frustrating part about all these studies. I love these studies. This is the stuff I I, I enjoy. But we're just we're just stopping early. Um, and it's a problem of resources. It's a problem of time. Um, again, I'm not blaming anybody because I've, I've done the same things. Um, we're like, okay, cool. Now what? Um, what, what do we do with this information? Um, and, and we're still struggling with that. Yeah, you know, they, they bring it up in the intro that yeah. um, evidence of thrombosis of, of these major venous system, systems is an important cause of perioperative death in these patients. And they provide some retrospective yeah. studies that, you know, can kind of uh, corroborate that. Um, so I went and kind of dug through those. And, oh, nice. Um, you know, there's three studies that they gave, and the, the one that I thought was probably the um, most beneficial was actually a pretty big um, patient population. It was like 500 and almost 540 yeah. cases, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and when I kind of picked through the stats, I mean, they had known or suspected um, portal system thrombosis in, in nine cases, mm -hmm. um, suspected um, pulmonary thrombosis, thromboembolism in four cases, um, and then four dogs that died um, with kind of like suspicious right. other causes. And I think three of them, they were pretty highly suspicious. They had some yeah. kind of thromboembolic event. So yeah. all those together, it was about 3% yeah. of the total population that had splenectomies developed mm -hmm. some kind of thrombotic event, Yeah, um, which 
you know, to me, you know, didn't stand out as a you know big enough population that warrants. <laughs> yeah, but then okay, so that and that's a very generous, right? The three percent is generous because that's including all the the suspicions, the right? Yeah. Um, which we don't know, but we also don't know is how many patients have increased morbidity because of clots. So we're only talking about how the patients that died, the patients that had a thrombotic event and we think died from it, so whether we confirmed it or not. But how many patients are throwing microthrombi and developing AKI that we're attributing to something else? Um, how many patients are developing um, you know, uh, ischemic injury to their gut and we're, we're not recognizing those things and they have horrible diarrhea postoperatively? We, we have no idea. We have no idea um, the mag and maybe it's none. It's possible that uh, you know that's not a thing that I need to be worrying about. I worry about it anyway um, because I think that there's probably also a lot of, um, like I said, morbidity, not just mortality, that is potentially going unnoticed. And so that three percent, if you just look at potential mortality um, directly related or may we think directly related to thrombosis, there might be other other things that impact it. But you're right. At the end of the day, you're like, well, that's a fairly small proportion. Should we be, you know, heparinizing or, or giving antiplatelet drugs to all of these patients and maybe increasing the risk of bleeding and other complications for that 3%? And the answer is we, we have no idea. Um, you know, I tend to make the argument that the, you know, heparin and antiplatelet drugs are relatively low risk um, because bleeding is, for me, so much easier to treat than clotting. Mm -hmm. um, I, can, I can do something about bleeding um, much, much easier. And so, um, but we, we don't have those studies either because that's the next step, right? If we say yes, because 3% is not zero, you know, I mean, that, that, that's a, a number of patients that are potentially dying that maybe could be prevented. Um, but what we don't know is, we can't yet use like you know tag variables. A study study like this would be really cool if we could correlate the severity of tag changes to the likelihood of developing um, a clot postoperatively. Because then you can say, well, if your MA is above this, then we should treat you. If it's below this, maybe we don't have to. Like that kind of information would be so helpful. Um, we're not there, um, but if if we got to that point, then the next step we have to say is, okay, well, what treatment is going to work? So I mean, again, there's there's. I, maybe we'll get this in my lifetime. I hope so. Maybe you can help with that, Sam. Um, but there's so many kind of follow-up questions that you know we, we really need to answer before we can say, we know this is the best way to treat things. We are just scratching the surface. And it's, we've only, only started looking at these types of questions for the past you know, 10, 15 years in veterinary medicine with, with Ernest. And so um, there's a lot we still don't understand. But we're, we're learning more and more, and it's really heartening to see these types of studies. Um, one thing I think it would be worth talking about in this is just like what is thromboelastography? Like what you know, not everybody listening um, may know much about it, and I don't know if you've actually had a chance to um, to see uh, a tag performed or, or how much you really know about that. And it's okay if you don't. But um, you know, what what's your understanding of of the tag? Yeah, you know, it's something that I hadn't heard of before vet school, or or maybe I you know I kind of heard it existed, but yeah. really didn't understand it. Um, and we've gotten a little bit of it covered in our, you know, clinical pathology courses cool. and um, we discussed it during our ECC and ICU yeah. um, clinical rotations. I haven't actually personally ever had a chance to see it performed or work on a case that, gotcha. that necessitated it. Um, I understand it in a very kind of basic sense. Sure. So basic, um, my general understanding is that it's, you know, a way to assess both hypo and hypercoagulable states, mm -hmm. um, you're kind of assessing your blood sample, uh, you know, in real time. Yep. And um, and it's it's a whole blood sample, so you're yep. you're, you're kind of witnessing the interactions of all those yes. um, 
uh, plasma proteins and cells that are interacting in yeah. very complicated ways. Yes. Um, that I would, I would love to know more about. Yeah. So, um, y yeah, you're right on all counts there. So one of the nice things about um, the tag is that it's a whole blood test, um, as you said. So rather than um, typically when you do a PT or PTT, um, you know, you get a, a citrated tube and then you spin it down and you just get the plasma components and the cellular components are often not included in that. There's some variation there, but that's that's pretty standard where the tag, you take a whole blood sample. Still citrated typically um, is going to be the standard. Like um, in this study, they did kale inactivated tags. So you citrate the sample, so you bind the calcium, so you can't have initiation of coagulation. So your blood stays in a liquid form. Um, and then for the tag, you you, you have these little cups and pins. Um, and essentially what's going to happen is you're going to put a little bit of blood in the cup um, and then you're going to suspend the pin down into the middle of the cup. Um, and then the machine, when the machine starts, the cup will start to rotate back and forth at predetermined rates and degrees. Um, and what that's meant to do is sort of mimic blood flow. Right, it's not really mimicking blood flow, but you're getting some motion um, that's going to kind of recreate blood flow. You add calcium back in, and you add in in this case kaolin, an activator to kind of get the process started. And then you just slowly rotate the cup back and forth, or the machine does. Um, and you're waiting for little strands of fibrin to form between the cup and the pin. The pin is suspended from a torsion or a frictionless wire, so that um, the pin's not moving as long as the blood is liquid. Um, so the pin's just hanging out, not doing anything. And when little strands of fibrin form between the cup and the pin, the pin starts to rotate with the cup. And that's what the computer registers. It says, okay, well, how much is the pin rotating? I know how much the cup is spinning because I'm doing it. I'm the machine. And then the machine says, well, how much is the pin rotating? And that's what it graphs. Um, and then so you get this visual representation of sort of the strength of that clot. Um, so how, how long does it take to form? And then initially you can imagine when you got little, just a couple little wimpy strands of fibrin, the pin's just maybe moving a little bit. And as that clot gets more and more robust, the pin starts to move really in time with the cup and they're, they're one unit and they're, they're, they're nice and strongly adhered. And so um, the, the tracing becomes wider and wider as that clot gets stronger and stronger. So we get a, a visual display of what that clot looks like, and then we collect the numbers. And so the parameters you have are, which is how long does it take from when you click start on the test to when you start to get a little bit of deflection um, on that pin. The pin just starts to move. So we've got a little bit of fibrin formed. And then the K is a predetermined value where um, when you get a 20 millimeter deflection of, of your pin. Um, so it's just kind of uh, how quickly does the clot start to form once, once it gets going. Um, the alpha angle is similar to the K. It's a different way of measuring sort of speed or the rate of the clot formation, and it's a tangent line um, drawn to the sort of slope of the curve as it's developing. MA stands for maximum amplitude, so where is the curve at its widest point, so the kind of overall strength and robustness of that clot. And then the G, as I mentioned earlier, is not a thing I'm a fan of, is really just a mathematical manipulation of the MA. Um, so, and they, they put that in the study, you know what it is. It's 5,000 times MA divided by 100 minus MA overall divided by a thousand. And so it's just MA. Um, okay. <laughs> and so that's why I'm like, ah, it doesn't really add anything. And if you actually in this, in the study, if you look at the, um, the whisker plots they have for MA and G, you will notice they follow a very similar pattern, um, at, you know, zero, two hours, uh, or sorry, two days, seven days and 14 days, you kind of follow this pattern. And then you look down here at the G and you're like, oh yeah, that kind of follows the same pattern, except I have wider, uh, whiskers. Um, so I just kind of increased, the variability in this, because it, again, it's just it's just a restating of the MA with with more numbers. So I've I've never really been a fan. I'm not sure what value it adds um, in, in this. So I usually just ignore the G. Um, but that that's my personal opinion based on, again, 
if you'd if you'd thrown in some other numbers, I might be like, okay, I kind of see where you're getting at, but uh, that's that's not one I've ever. Yeah, liked. it doesn't seem to add much that you don't already get from. No, I don't. I don't think it does. So. Um, at any rate, um, so that's kind of what the tag is meant to do. And, and you know, as you look into it a little more, it allows you to look at the individual variables and sort of tease out where in the coagulation process do I think, um, you know, this hypercoagulability or, or hypocoagulability is potentially, you know, being derived from. So is it platelets? Is it fibrinogen? Um, is it clotting factors? And, and it's not a perfect, it's not like, oh, if, if it's this, then you know it's that. But it, it allows you to kind of um, tease out a little bit more what might be going on and to maybe sometimes maybe make treatment decisions, right? So if I have a really robust MA, um, maybe that would argue that platelets are playing an important role in um, inappropriate clot formation or that's what I'm worried about. And so antiplatelet drugs might be, might be important. But if I have a really shortened R or K, maybe I'm going to say maybe those clotting factors are a bigger play. Um, and so considering something like a heparin or, or um, one of the anti-10A drugs might be, might be appropriate. So um, that, that's why a lot of us have really um, liked the TAG. The reason you probably haven't seen it used a whole lot in clinical cases is that I don't know what to make of these numbers yet. We don't have the study. So I can't do a TAG and look at a patient and say, well, now that I know the MA is this value, I need to do this. And so from my clinical behavior, we don't have enough evidence to say that I should change what I do based on these findings. We'll do it sometimes if we have a patient that we, maybe we found a clot and we're trying to decide, like, do we think hypercoagulability is playing a role? Um, and some people want to use that to guide therapy. I would say if you've got a clot there, it probably doesn't matter and you mm -hmm. need to do something about it forming a clot. Um, and maybe some antithrombotics would be good. Um, but, you know, we, we try to, to use it maybe more diagnostically to figure out what could be the problem. Um, but we have a number of diseases where we, we know patients have an increased risk of thrombosis. If you have IMHA, we know you have an increased risk of thrombosis. If you have Cushing's disease, we know you have an increased risk of thrombosis. Um, it, it sounds like maybe in splenectomies we know, um, but what we don't yet know is what should we do about that? And so that's, I think, the next frontier in veterinary medicine and when it comes to hemostasis research and what I'd love to see people start doing more of. Um, uh, but it, it does take studies like this um, to kind of get people thinking about it and get people worrying about it. Um, if, you don't, if you don't worry about it, then you're never going to do anything about it. So I do appreciate these types of studies where we say, hey, it makes sense. We borrowed from our neighbors um, in human medicine and, and said, yeah, that we're, we're seeing a problem over there. Very likely we're seeing a similar phenomenon here. Um, so let's get some evidence to support that. And then hopefully stimulate more interest in, in research and, and you know maybe somebody who wants to fund research um, to come through and be like, hey, this is a real problem. Maybe we need to do something about it. Um, so I, I, I think this was a really well um, you know, conducted study. Obviously, flaws like all studies do. But um, overall, I think they did a really great job here. Um, and one more piece of the puzzle um, and, and hopefully one more thing to kind of stimulate more interest and uh, again hopefully hopefully keep your interest up and and one day you can be you can be contributing to answering some of these questions i'd like to because yeah they definitely make me wonder <laughs> yeah there's a lot of wondering we just got to start answering some of these questions um, awesome well sam um i really appreciate you coming on i think this was um, a, a great paper to discuss um and obviously there's lots more that needs to be discussed in it but um hopefully you'll you'll come back and, and join us for another show sometime yeah i hope so thanks so much for having me Thanks for listening to today's show. I'd like to thank my producer, Topher. Follow us on social media. We're on Twitter or Instagram at Vet Journal Club. All episodes are available at veterinaryjournalclub.fireside.fm. You can email us with questions, comments, or show ideas at veterinaryjournalclub at gmail.com. 
and check back weekly for new episodes and we'll catch you next time.